Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast where a little does not necessarily go a long way. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. This week, we are not talking about the Conservative leadership race in a related attempt to try and save our sanity. We're going to talk about a current academic debate instead. Is nudging all it's cracked up to be? discuss this a while back on the on the podcast years ago now we we did discuss this about five or six years ago but nudging is essentially the idea you can get people to change their behavior by making small changes to their environment or the things that they interact with i.e it's the the notion that if you change the color of uh something on a form more people will gravitate towards that option it's it's, it's kind of the application of like marketing's uh, a b testing or multivariate testing but on a on a kind of wider economic and psychological scale it's associated with a few with behavioral economics as well isn't it which is sort of yeah. how we, the, we uh, talked about in the podcast so it's people like richard thaler and cass sunstein who wrote co-wrote the book nudge together and also the uh not just economics but sort of that area where economics sort of met psychology so daniel kahneman who wrote Thinking Fast and Slow, and Amos Tversky, who we did some stuff with before. Yeah, so essentially, it's also a sort of way of trying to use psychology to get better policy outcomes. So you've mentioned a couple. A few others that we used are, uh, say, opt-in pensions. Essentially, you would be automatically enrolled into uh, accepting a, a, a state pension rather than having to tick a box to say it. And the idea was that most people can't be bothered to tick a box, but most people quite like a pension. And so therefore you end up with a, you end up with a sort of better policy outcome. Uh, another way, uh, very similar presumed organ consent. So obviously most people, it turns out, would quite don't mind if their organs are used in the unfortunate event of an untimely death uh, as sort of replacement organs. So therefore, but actually never then get round to leaving their body to uh, organ donation. So essentially using it in that way instead, but still allowing people to opt out. Or uh, a third way, which really is taking the piss, is to fly in the urinal. So the idea that apparently, you know, this is Richard Thaler's thing, if you put a picture of a fly in a gent's urinal, the, the men in the urinal are going to aim at the fly and um, avoid splashing their uh, contents all over the bathroom floor, which is famously why all gents' toilets are now spotless in pubs since the introduction of flies. Yeah, I think we might have just come across the uh, the first major argument against nudging there, uh, don't you? <laughs> well, so reading some of the academic analysis on this, there is, they call it a backlash, essentially. And this idea that some people in the nudges essentially do the opposite thing to what they've been asked to do, which I suppose is the example of the man pissing over the bathroom floor rather than aiming at the fly. Sort of in a, in a sort of willful way. A couple of my mates are contrary enough to try and do that sort of stuff, depending on what it is that's, that that they they were being nudged to do. So I can absolutely believe that there is 
uh, enough of a backlash that would be recorded in these things just by people being contrarians. This became massive nudge theory, not pissing outside the urinal. That's been one of the life's constants. Um, nudging became very popular uh, around the sort of mid-90s, mid-2000s, mentioned some of the academic literature. Also happened during the, the Cameron government. So uh, during the Cameron government, Downing Street opened a nudge unit and Richard Thaler was involved in the setting up of that. It's, um, I think it's been since sold off with a private company and uh, people at Australia and Canada have used nudging as part of their government policy. Um, that's part of the stuff we talked about on the podcast five or six years ago, which you can find, I think, I think, I'm not sure if you can find the internet. There is probably a vinyl of it going round, some sort of 33 and a third, um, given when we, how long this bloody podcast has been going now. Yeah, that's terrifying a thought, actually. <laughs> mm. That's how we raise money, you see. If we can't get enough people on Patreon, we can just sell vinyl copies of our finest podcasts. <laughs> Greatest hits, volumes one to ninety-six. Not enough champagne's twelve worst predictions. Um, <laughs> uh, now, nudging's always had its critics, hasn't it? So you've got some people who say it's quite paternalistic, don't they? Uh, or uh, sort of authoritarian as well, which we sort of talk, talked about this, but it's never really been an argument I've necessarily found much favour with. But yeah, I don't necessarily buy into the notion that it's authoritarian. Um, and paternalistic, I can get as a as, as, as a notion. It, it very much still, still does come from the idea that, you know, the state or government knows best and that you need to be guided towards a specific outcome. Which, you know, if you are an individual who values, uh, you know, individual liberty, then yeah, I can see why you might kind of not be too enamoured with the with with the topic. But like at the time, it did seem like there was enough evidence to support at least giving this a go in some capacity. Now, as you say, there's been some studies that have looked into this now and they've noticed that there's, you know, backlash um, from some people specifically doing the opposite of what they're meant to do just because they're being contrary or, or for whatever reason. Um, and I think generally speaking that it's the impact of nudging hasn't been as strong as its proponents would have uh, would have liked to see. There have been successes, but there have also been an awful lot of failures in terms of uh, affecting overall outcomes, which suggests that it is not worthless, but it's just a tool to be utilised, which would sometimes will work and sometimes won't. And then you just kind of go from there. We'll talk about the paternalistic aspect when we go into, uh, I suppose, yeah, that the bigger issues with with nudging generally. It's uh, it's interesting that Adam Curtis in the BBC series that came out last year um, can't get you out of my head. But he talks explicitly about um, nudging behavioural economics, mentions Carlin and mentions the publication bias we're about to talk about, and he sort of uses this uh, as an example of the sort of the triumph of uh, neoliberalism, for another better way of, of looking at it, which I find, I mean, it's a, like all of Adam Curtis's things, it's an interesting but flawed look. But I, I never really understood nudging as a sort of free market perspective, because certainly when you read some of Richard, Na Richard Naylor, not Richard Naylor, Richard Thaler's stuff, it feels like 
what he's getting at and what Kahneman's getting at as well is essentially that it there it's a bunch of research and a bunch of essentially that challenges the assumption that free market classical free market economics has about how humans behave that essentially the assumption made by free market economists is that humans are rational calculating beings who are always trying to maximize the amount of benefit personal profit they can get out of a situation and Richard Thaler finds a, a bunch of situations where that doesn't happen yeah ab- absolutely I mean it's been a while since I've read the original nudge book um that, that, that Thaler produced um but like I didn't co- walk away from after reading it going this this man loves him loves him some capitalism uh, and is uh you know trying to just push a certain like you know neoliberal kind of like agenda or anything like that it is very much just a notion of this is how people's behavior can be affected and this can be utilized for policy outcomes or kind of like to shape an agenda uh, in, in in a certain way so i feel like um curtis there is probably bringing in his own little uh shall we say foibles into his analysis uh and just man with view produces documentary with views we you we've we've hinted we've teased haven't we at the publication bias let's get into those bias publications the issue of publication bias and uh, as someone who uh is a historian and didn't really do experiments. There is only one great experiment going on, Steve, and that's the game of life. I had to work out what publication bias was, and that is it's essentially it's only publishing results that support a particular theory, and you then don't publish the ones that don't. So there's someone in psychology today that uses a baseball metaphor. Now, obviously, we're not good, we don't, we shy away from crude Americanisms on this podcast. Hello, Patrick, and sorry, by the way. Um, so instead, obviously, we're going to change that to a cricket rep metaphor, something to make it easier for you to understand. Um, and the way that the, the chap talks about it is essentially that it's a bit like saying that someone is a great cricketer because they've scored 10 centuries. But what it doesn't tell you is, did that person play 50 innings or 100 or 10,000. So if you only sort of produce these self-selected successes and then claim that your theory works and you're ignoring the vast amount of wrong experiments that don't fit the theory, that is problematic. Yeah, absolutely. It effectively becomes you're hiding your, not necessarily your, your mistakes, but like you're, you're deliberately um, not showing all of the data to fit your specific theory. I mean, go back to, you know, what we were saying there about uh, uh, Curtis there, where he goes, man with view produces documentary to match view. It's very much that kind of, that kind of thing just done in a academic context of, I have my opinion, this is what I want to see. And then just show, focusing your data on demonstrating that opinion or demonstrating that narrative rather than actually going into it with an entirely, uh, you know, a blank slate of let the data before where it may. Yeah, archaeologists find what they're looking for. Yeah. And I, I suppose in so publication by turns out, um, again, man finds out things he didn't know about before and is shocked by them. But it turns out it's quite an issue generally. So it, it's a sort of issue with peer-reviewed journals generally is essentially only the flashy stuff gets printed. Anything that isn't particularly new or hip or sexy doesn't get published. But then that obviously is a problem when you're trying to see it, especially 
in these sorts of areas. And there's a, there's a massive side issue about how you deal with, with that issue. And there's uh, and sorry, and on top of that, you've also then got the issue that um, if the only things that are getting you know published are the kind of new shiny shiny things or, or or whatever, that then feeds into actually wider policy areas as well because whatever other things that are getting published and are being talked about are those are the things that end up being talked about in political circles and governance circles as to you know in relation to I, I don't know let's say you know you you're talking about you know climate change and and uh, findings that surrounding that something that's cool and shiny about a new way to i don't know store carbon or or or, or whatever going to get people talking and it influences the debate by people going ah carbon storage that's clearly the way what we need to do we don't need to worry about as much about cutting down on our emissions and you can see how suddenly that has a wider impact so it's not just a case of here's a Here's a niche academic thing. It, it has wider impacts in society. Yeah. And, and university academics, through this sort of research excellence framework, they have to produce research that shows impact in the wider world. The impact in the, if the impact is, well, we did a bunch of experiments have found that this thing doesn't work. That's useful, but not going to get you a lot of money. No, uh, absolutely not. That, as this podcast has proved. <laughs> So essentially, there's a big meta-analysis done by the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or as we're going to call it, PNAS. Um, And this happens in January and is revised in July. And essentially what they find is that the average effect of nudges is 0.43. And just to put that in context, um, standard uh, that's a standard deviation 0.2 is small 0.5 is median they also find that 15 percent of the nudges fails so that's the um uh the blowback we we're talking about earlier when the the piss misses the fly that 15 percent figure implies that there is a massive massive publication bias because if you try and bring in a thing and you find 85 percent of the time that thing is successful that almost in and of itself implies there's a huge amount of times that things shouldn't have worked that we are not hearing about. Yeah, 100%. But also just for, you know, the to play devil's advocate on that, that's also like, you know, if you were to be able to turn around and be able to say this this action, this tool, 85% of the time works to, to some degree, that's still a very useful tool in and of itself. Just because something doesn't work 100% of the time to a strong amount doesn't mean that it's it's useless or worthless. I suppose just to sort of, um, just to defecate on your devil for a second, the, the problem, again, it's like the 10 centuries, but of how many innings? So how many, how many other times did the experiment not work? And yeah. that's not known. And I suppose the other thing is that, uh, something around the sort of 0.2, 0.3, 0.4. Again, not a scientist, but from what I've read, that can be a similar. Uh, some of the effects of nudging are pretty similar to uh, a placebo effect. Generally, yeah, yeah. Essentially, with the standard deviation kind of like being where 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 it is, it's not sufficient enough to be able to say beyond all reasonable doubt this is having an impact. Um, so yeah, that is definitely something to take into consideration. But I think, again, it goes back to that notion of, is this, you know, a, a deus ex machina that will like suddenly revolutionise everything? No. Is it a tool that can be utilised? Probably. Depends on what you're looking at. Depends on the context. 
depends if you've already done a load of nudging. It's probably something that hits diminishing returns overall. Well, and then I suppose, and this is the point, isn't it? Nudging was so again the 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 word implies sort of nudging is about small things, and I suppose it was sold as sort of small changes that will make big outcomes. Yeah. I mean, so there's again the same psychology today article that insists on using baseball when they should really be using cricket as an appropriate sporting metaphor. Uh, essentially they compare saying that nudges don't work is a bit like saying that medicine doesn't work it sort of depends on what medicine you're using and let's just think about thinking fast and slow like there are some elements of Kahneman's work like say the halo effect where someone looks more impressive um almost because of their sort of situation. You sort of see that in, say, polls for best prime minister, where generally whoever's the incumbent will always look more prime ministerial than their challenger. Um, and you can talk about that, uh, though, those um, sort of heuristics that are used in, in thinking, and they can make sense even when a lot of the more, uh, even when a lot of the experiments that are cited in thinking fast and slow on the behavioural side actually aren't replicated outside the laboratory or outside those studies. Um, and so it is a, a sort of give and take, um, but it's more, should governments be basing their whole policy solutions around these packages? Well, probably not. No, absolutely not. I mean, that's that's the long and short of it. I mean, I, I think you'll probably find that when you when you look at when kind of like uh, Thaler produces research in his book Nudge, um, and like nudging as a whole began to take on its own kind of like role in in public discourse and kind of like governance and policy. It was during like the, the during the twenty tens. It was very much during a period where you know we'd just come off the back of uh, the recession throughout a lot of Europe, um, certainly in the UK, where uh, at the very least we had a conservative led uh, government um, at the very minimum, and they were looking for ways to make changes to things and affect outcomes without spending money without getting involved into in with by you know by having the government actively do things or legislate or regulate or or whatever else and so they found this nice little new wonder wonder tool which purported to make people change their behavior without them having to really do much work and I think that was that was clearly very appealing um, to uh, a certain type of uh, individual, and so it, it took on a life of its own. Where, where as you say, like in the UK, we had an entire nudge unit devoted to it, which was then sp- sold off and spun off into its own company and all kinds of things. And it's in a lot of ways, it's absolutely mad that um, that that it was taken to to that to that degree like as a as a theory it's not necessarily so radical that it should really need a, its own government department to to do these things it should just be a thing that you say to you know you say to the different departments this is the latest best practice in terms of determining outcomes build it in like that's that's all you needed to do rather than having this centralized team working on its all entirely on that and that alone again even just saying this is the best practice for the best outcomes build it in you're making a lot of assumptions oh yeah i mean this was based on what was being said at at the time yeah but but so in that sense that nudging 
So there's a couple of things, aren't there? So one of them is absolutely, I think the fact that you've got governments looking for cheap and simple solutions to these problems and they don't want to spend money. Um, and also, I think the fact that we're sort of in a, a bit of a life hack society, that we don't really, that it, it people sort of fad diets and fad messaging and just do this simple thing and that will solve this problem without really having to try. And I think that the idea that you could, you know, nudge and be able to change the the colour of something or put eyes by a bin and that means that people put their rubbish in a bin more than they don't, even though it turns out it isn't true. But all of that is, is true. But I suppose the other thing is that that the assumption of, well, we just need to find the best practice. And it's not just you said that, even lesser politicians like Tony Blair and Michael Gove with their sort of what matters isn't what works. But that, that begs a whole lot of questions about, what are the policy outcomes that you're trying to achieve? And actually, nudging is quite perfect about that. And it is, I think it's also quite redolent of our sort of what we used to call the post-ideological age before ideology sort of came back. But this idea that sort of politics was about managerialism, and all they had to do was find out what the best thing to do was and then do it. When if we were just, just to take, say, improving food and nutrition where actually some food nudging turned out to be quite harmful because people but so there was one about well we don't want people to keep using lots of plastic bottles uh for water because we're running out of plastic it's bad for the, the environment if people use it chuck it away so they started taking plastic bottles from supermarkets uh which meant that instead rather than taking bottles of water people took fizzy drinks which obviously is worse for their health and um and so in terms of again it comes back to what's your uh are you worried about paternalism so do you think it's the state's job to regulate the amount of sugar and salt and fat in these things do you think the state should be say trying to as to do in Amsterdam do food classes where parents and kids learn together yeah, it's, it's actually a more holistic thing as well about making sure that people have the work-life balance and childcare to be able to have those sort of things. And instead, well, I suppose we have the calories and the sort of nudging, but we also have the sort of salt and sugar tax, which a lot of libertarians do not like. But there isn't really a sort of joined up thinking about what is the policy outcome and therefore what are the policy levers we should use. Yeah, absolutely. And I think certainly in the UK, that's very much the, uh, in, in, perhaps you could say that nudging in terms of judging its effectiveness has been a victim of the lack of actual any focus for the Conservatives outside of a few kind of like limited areas. Like Cameron and Osborne were elected to get the, uh, get the, um, the, the deficit down. Outside of that, they didn't really have a lot to say. They, they, did some, they, did, they did some stuff, but it wasn't necessarily, that was their main raison d'etre. You know, May was uh, basically elected and chosen as Tory leader to get Brexit done. Johnson was chosen to get Brexit done. And none of these things are necessarily, as you say, things that allow for a lot of bandwidth to look at other things or to look at other areas or to look at the wider issues so that, you know, maybe with a bit more of an actual focus of this is what we're trying to actually achieve, 
um, you could potentially leverage nudging in a more meaningful way. But without that overall objective, it doesn't do anything. It's just a thing that's happening for no real reason. Well, take levelling up. So actually, that is the big project that the Johnson government, well, it has until September the 5th, until the new leader comes in and then pretends it never happened. But you can't, again, we had a whole podcast, didn't we, on what levelling up would mean and what what the success criteria would be in terms of qualifications, in terms of regional equalities coming down, all that kind of stuff. And actually, you don't need nudges there. You need shoves. You need massive investment in infrastructure. You need more devolution to local leaders and a massive increase in investment. And that's not happening. And that th- there is no nudging there. It's it's a big problem that ha- needs a big solution to it. Yeah, 100%. Look at, say, climate change as well. I, I know you didn't watch the Conservative debate on Monday. You didn't watch the Conservative debate on Monday because you're less masochistic than I am. But for the listeners, Steve, I didn't do it for myself. Uh, I did it as a seasoned political pundit. It's my job to be miserable. And possibly the worst point of the whole debate was when Sophie Rayworth asked Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak. So what are the three things that we could do that, that, that people could do to sort of stop the effects of climate change? And you think, hang on, <laughs> this isn't about nudging people to leave the lights off. You know, this is a massive problem in the fifth line, but a massive worldwide problem, which is caused by most emissions caused by a few companies that this is not the way of looking at it. Actually, that is, that was the second worst thing. The worst thing was Richard's next response, which was to say, ah, well, I've learned this from my kids because they're young and they care about this. When you think you have an entire, Patrick Valance gave an entire briefing to MPs on the climate emergency and what needed to be done, which Richard's next did not go to. And instead, we're going to listen to his kids. And I'm sure Richard's next kids are very, very knowledgeable, but I'm not really sure he would say, you know, to his economic, if it was a question on the economy, he wouldn't be saying, oh, I'll just see how my kids are safe in their pocket money. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that was a slight aside. I think the other thing, is, and this is maybe to finish off, is that, and it sort of links to the paternalism slightly, it's this idea that if only we could sort of guide people gently to what they want to do then they'll do it and then the whole world will be fine there was another recent example like this which I, we can just finish off talking about and this is about framing and this is very very popular um especially with art students like us who think that you know there isn't actually anything that's real and it's only things you talk about which are real and there's an interesting scientific experiment about wearing masks um, and different messages that have been tried to try and get Americans into mask wearing. Anything from, um, well, ma- wearing a mask will keep you safe to sort of more about keeping the community safe to saying it's your patriotic duty to keep it safe. Uh, none of them worked at all. None of them are very effective. The least effective, in fact, was saying that the scientific evidence says that you should wear a mask, which was the least effective, which... Um, I'm sure we can speculate about why that is while the word world burns. Can't we wonder if the two things are connected? Yeah. But, but again, this idea that, um, oh, well, everyone needs the same policy outcomes. All we have to do is change the framing and people magically believe the same things we do has also been a, a bit of a misnomer. And that's not to say that 
some framing is useful is it like if i say don't think of elephant you will think of an elephant but some things are slightly more complicated than that yeah absolutely and i think it kind of just goes back to what i said earlier and that you know nudging framing there are a lot of different things that can influence behavior and they may very well be worth considering as part of a a package to deliver on a policy objective but one, you've got to have a strong idea about what it is you're trying to actually achieve. And two, you've got to actually work to put together something quite meaningful as a package to actually achieve it. You can't just rely on these small things because they don't work on their own. Like would nudging in, for instance, uh, in, in conjunction with, you know, massive advertising around, a, around an issue to influence people's behavior? function in some function more effectively probably but you've got to actually invest in it to begin with to actually generate any kind of return or actually see any impact and doing that involves you effectively just you know spending money which the conservatives and for certain don't want to do on that I'll, happy note <laughs> i'll tell you what else the conservatives don't want you to spend money on and that's our patreon business team <laughs> Excellent segue. Uh, yes, yeah. if you really want to annoy uh, both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, you should go over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne and fling us a few pounds every month where you'll get access to unique episodes and content. Uh, you know, you know, go go annoy the Tories. Give us some money. That's clearly the way to, to help the world. If only we had a merch store, we could have a don't blame me. I voted for Penny Morden badge that we could sell. <laughs> Our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. Happy plotting. Happy plotting.